future trends, deep insights, industry leaders. This is the iGaming Next podcast with your host, Pierre Lint. This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Solutions, the leading iGaming PAM platform with a modular approach, including many benefits like a fast, secure, and scalable API-based platform integrated with all major third-party products and services. Make sure you head over to Pragmatic Solutions and join our smart thinking. Work smarter, not harder. Fast Track frees up time for CRM teams to be more creative, innovative, and analytical. Welcome to the future of CRM. Find out more at FastTrack-Solutions.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Bombay Experience. Defining the future of luxury gaming experiences from digital through to physical. Seamlessly. Flawlessly. Exclusively. Visit Bombay.io. This podcast is brought to you by Playson, the fastest-growing digital entertainment supplier for the global gaming industry. Operating across 20 regulated markets and with more than 140 partners worldwide, Playson's diverse portfolio of enthralling casino games, captivating tournaments, and promotional tools are proven to maximize player engagement and retention. To find out more, visit www.playson.com. This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Play, an industry-leading content provider of slots, live casino, bingo, and virtual sports. Pragmatic Play excels at creating an immersive, engaging, and mobile-focused experience for players, with over 200 HTML5 games that are available in all currencies, 31 languages, and all major certified markets. Discover more at pragmaticplay.com. And uh, Bendy Charniak, how are you doing today? Nice to have you here on the podcast. Pierre, pleasure. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, so to <laughs> actually be making an appearance, my grand debut, I'm, I'm excited for it. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm pumped as well, uh, Bendy. And I mean, as an introduction here, I got to know you uh, last year here, and um, kind of we were thinking about perhaps organizing a conference in New York. We didn't really have that many entry points, but uh, Rory, our uh, great colleague here, Rory Credland, uh, got in touch with you um, to see if you were willing to help us, basically, to set up this conference. Um, I didn't know you at that point, but now, a couple of months later, I've had, had the pleasure of getting to know you through uh, this advisory board for uh, New York, and it's, uh, it's just been a great pleasure to work together. And I thought that it would be a great opportunity to just sit down and talk to one of the best connected and one of the most experienced people in the US online sports betting and uh, iGaming industry. So, you know, without further ado, Benji, I mean, you were born, now you are here. Can you tell me what happened in between? What's the history? Of, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if I want to go back to the day I was born, but I'll give you a bit of my background in the space. You, you know, you kind of go back to the, the mid 2000s and is when I got involved with uh, with Don Best Sports, and you know, you go back to the history. Then the industry was just so different then than it was now. You know, uh, uh, i gaming and sports betting was really a bad word then in the U.S. market. And you know, back then our product was kind of like uh, a one-trick pony. It was, uh, for lack of a better phrase, a Bloomberg terminal for sports betting, which was called the Don Best Screen, and that Don Best Screen is still active today. And you know, folks still use it, be it uh, betters themselves or or, or traders uh, that work at the various sports books as a way of comparing the odds from various uh, from one sports book to another and seeing where your lines are and to make sure that you're moving with the market and accurate start times and the whole nine yards. And you know, as I began assessing who our customer base was, I began to notice that some of these bigger European sports books 
were buying multiple accounts and you know some of these bigger sports books at that time were the ones out in europe and australia and asia because there wasn't much of a market in the u.s other than las vegas and uh you know you go back 2007 2008 the thought process for me was well why don't i get out to europe and start meeting some of these customers and understanding how they're using the product and how we can maybe create some additional opportunities for ourselves and themselves and you know, you, you look at some of these companies that had 5, 10, 15 logins to the Donbass screen. What we discovered is they would literally have 5, 10, 15 traders that were watching the Donbass screen to see when lines were moving for U.S. sports. <laughs> and when the lines moved, they would manually make that adjustment. So, you know, this was all third party. Yeah, different times. You know, it was all third party data at that time. We weren't creating any proprietary data. So what we did is we kind of took all of that, those betting lines and put it into a consensus line and amalgamated it all and provided that via an API to some of these larger European sports books and top line markets only spread total money line and they would build out all the derivatives and everything was in real time. And overnight, some of these bigger sports books, you know, all of a sudden had a kick-ass U.S. sports pre-match betting product that they never had previously. And, nice. uh, you know, for us, it became uh, our first foray into some significant automation, as basic as it sounds. And, uh, you know, our sales grew by leaps and bounds. And, you know, now you fast forward to maybe 2010, and all of these sportsbook customers of ours, which was literally everyone, everyone took this product, and they all kind of came to us and said, hey, Benji, this is fantastic. We've now got a fantastic pre-match product automated for American sports. We never had any, never had previously. But here out in Europe, most of the betting is no longer pre-match. It's taken place during the game. And we're doing in-play betting. And this is back 2009, 2010. And my answer at that time is, what is in-game betting? I didn't even really know what it was because in the U.S., no one had heard of it. No one was doing it. And, yeah. you know, uh, as I began looking at all of the sports books from which we were gathering data, that were more US facing, none of them were doing in play wagering. So I didn't have a product third party to provide to them. So the answer became, let's build it out ourselves. And I think that was kind of the coming to Jesus moment that really changed the direction and vision that we had as a company. And, you know, we hired some people out of Europe, uh, our VP trading at the time, a guy named Craig Mucklow and moved him and his family to the US. And we kind of built out some algorithms we had one gentleman come on board who had some experience with that and our cto at the time put together some sort of a platform and then we hired you know four or five kids out of unlv to come work in our office in vegas part-time to to be our traders and that first year we had a, an nba product and we had one customer and we traded the entire nba season for that one customer and as you can imagine it was a complete disaster i mean the technology <laughs> wasn't very good our algorithms were horrible. Our, our VP trading was, was a rock star then, remains a rock star today. He's over at Caesars now, but you know, he did a fantastic job kind of keeping it together. But you know, our four or five traders would often show up hungover, if at all. And you know, we kind of <laughs> had to work our way through that first season. But as we went along, it got a little bit better. You know, V2 of our models became better than V1. And we improved the technology platform and the traders got better and we found some new traders and you know, it kind of snowballed a bit. By the end of the year, our loan customer began making money with this thing. And that's when we began to realize maybe we're onto something. And one customer became two, 
And then we began building out the MLB models and two customers became three. And then we began building up the NFL and the college and it kind of just snowballed. And after pushing the snowball uphill for such a long period of time, it was just so gratifying to see the snowball start to go downhill and, and collect more and more snow and kind of grew from there. And, you know, we kind of became known as the leaders for, for you know, in-play wagering for U.S. sports. And, you know, eventually PASPA got repealed and we became an acquisition target and sold the company in 2018 to uh, Scientific Games, which I guess is now Light and Wonder. And uh, I stayed on with them for a two-year period and uh, uh, parted ways amicably uh, January of 2021. And that kind of brought me into to having some free time on my hands and uh, getting into the investment side. Brilliant. That was a, a, a great uh, explanation of from birth to present. I like it. Uh, and uh, I mean, you, you are obviously um, focused on, on the investment side of the uh, business at the moment. And uh, not that many investors that I've come, to, come in contact with have that uh, long operational background that you have on kind of building and creating the best. And as you, as you put it rightly, you, you had that true entrepreneurial experience of having to uh, really struggle before you see the, the, the fruits of your labor. Um, that must be a, a pretty good uh, experience and asset to have as an investor being able to level with your potential investment uh, objects when you advise them and so on. Yeah, I, I think that might be part of the appeal for a number of the companies that I work with is that, you know, I, I, I was an operator within the space working operationally from a different era when you had to really earn your miles every way through to get to where you're going. And obviously the industry is a little bit different now than it was then. But I think for a lot of the new entrepreneurs that are just kind of getting going, being able to, to work for, for me, being able to work alongside them, but for them being able to lean on not just my expertise in the space, but the experience having gone through over a number of years to build and grow a company and achieve a resolution in the end. So yeah, I think that is a bit unique uh, uh, as it pertains to, to some of the other folks that are investing in the space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I mean, when when PASPA was uh, repealed in in 2018, for you guys, that must have been, I mean, a champagne type moment when when this happened for you guys. Uh, uh, the, the whole landscape changed over overnight, more or less. Um, how, how was how was that day for you? It's like one of those moments you will remember where you were. I, w- I would imagine. You know, I don't even remember when I, where oh, I was when I heard it was being appealed. So I, I guess I don't remember where I was. But yeah, I mean, all, look, it was a champagne popping moment for a lot of people in the space. Yes, and, yes, uh, yes. Uh, you know, it created the land of opportunity, you know, for us. And, and you, you know, it wasn't like it happened overnight. Like we kind of saw it coming and then the momentum began yeah. to build that this might become a possibility. And then it came to fruition. But yeah, for us, for sure, it was a game changer. I think we were an attractive company, but you know, you have to bear in mind that we were the experts uh, in American sports and betting lines for U.S. sports. And, exactly. you know, we had to make a living selling U.S. sports to non-American operators where U.S. sports exactly. aren't that popular. So I would kind of run around to all these conferences around the globe, Australia, Asia, yeah. Europe, South America, and I would pitch all these operators in Europe on the need to move off of whoever their current supplier was that would provide them with everything, usually a sport yeah. radar, and for American sports to do a separate integration and go through all that pain. Um, um, 
for something that was only generating maybe 2% or 3% of their revenue. So it wasn't an yeah. easy sales pitch. And no, to be able to all of a sudden have that opportunity at home within the US made things a lot easier. But it didn't take too long for folks to come knocking on the door and saying, hey, we want to own this company and buy it from you. So that was kind of the route we chose to go. Right. Uh, Benji, today at the time of this recording, um, we never know what's going to, ha- going to happen tomorrow and the day after that, of course. But today, uh, DraftKings hit a 52-week low um, on, the, on the stock markets. They are valued uh, at the moment at something like 2 billion USD from a peak of almost 30 billion. Um, you could say that you can attribute a lot of this to to the um, just the macroeconomic climate that is just not favoring speculative investments at the moment. Um, but saying that, uh, DraftKings have still been able to execute on the plan that they have communicated. Um, they are meeting the targets and they're very clear on uh, uh, that this uh, business will be very cash hungry. Um, and um, our one of our investors in Agumenex, Robin Eric Reed, his, he made a bull case for uh, DraftKings actually uh, the other day is uh, being impressed of over especially their retention rates in in DraftKings. So essentially, uh, the the story I'm trying to tell here is uh, the macroeconomic climate is potentially causing um, disruptions for our industry at the moment. So I would just like to ask you, what, what do you see as the current state of play for the uh, U.S. online sports betting and gaming industries, and uh, specifically considering? The macroeconomic climate are you worried that investment will dry up in the space and potentially disrupt the industry before it even got uh, its feet off the ground no i you know look obviously when the public markets have a meltdown and all the big players on the uh, the big public companies in our space their valuations get cut in half or cut in a quarter or even more than that in some instances you know, over time, that trickles down to the private investment side as well. And yeah. it, it has an impact on, on valuations across the board. And it just makes things a little bit more difficult uh, for, for, for entrepreneurs. And for us as investors, we need to be a little bit more cautious as to what deals make sense and where is the value and, you know, how can that company help solve a problem? But at the end of the day, I think it also presents a lot of opportunity, you know, like, uh, uh, you're now in a situation where the market's struggling a bit and some of the companies are struggling as it pertains to valuations. But I think that for the astute investors and the astute VC firms, they're seeing a lot of opportunities. And I think you got to not get too high when the market's high or too low when the market's low, maintain an even keel in terms of your strategy. And I think that still we're in very, very early innings and we haven't seen the Californias and the Texases and the Floridas open up yet. Surely they will. Ontario just opened up, which is a huge yeah. push movement within North America. So I'm, I'm certainly very excited about the path forward and the opportunities uh, that will present themselves uh, in all fronts as it pertains to the iGaming space and on my end more specifically sports betting. Yeah, I, I hear a little bit more like bearish sentiments on the uh, big four states specifically uh, as we move into uh, the next couple of years. Uh, the likes of, uh, um, of uh, California, uh, I hear sometimes that... Uh, it's not that likely that we'll see online sports betting in California, but rather retail. Texas, there was some momentum, but not at the moment. Florida, obviously, there's the Seminoles. Um, what, what's your thoughts here? I mean, uh, 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 and I think today as well, can the, the sports betting bill in Kentucky was uh, shot down finally as well. Like, um, is there? Do you feel more bullish about, uh, especially the big four states? Do you see that? Uh, do you see that uh, there will be a more to me it's a matter to, to me every, yeah. to me yeah no to me everything is just a matter of time like it's yeah. you know 
and, and I view this as a marathon and not as a sprint. And I think that it's good that some of the states are taking longer because it allows us to kind of settle in. It allows the industry to stabilize in some sense. It allows operators to become more astute as to how they operate. It allows, B, it allows B2B companies to position themselves within the existing framework. And then in two or three years from now, when one of the other big states comes on board, it creates another kind of level of opportunity and layer of additional revenue stream. So look, you know, when New York initially opened up, it was under one framework, and then they adjusted that framework because they recognized what the opportunity was. And each state is different. It's, you know, we've, I was saying this right from the get-go is that you got to kind of view the U.S. as a microcosm of Europe, where each state represents a European country that has its own layers of regulatory and their own political battles within it and all those things that lead to what a legislation will look like and what a tax rate will look like. So there's no homo it's not a homogenous process by any means, but the path forward is going to be more growth oriented than not, and those states will eventually come on board. Right, right, right. It's a it's a good point because because uh, I mean again bringing up the example of DraftKings uh, here, it's uh, as the as the share price is falling and the market cap is falling, it becomes more difficult to uh, generate cash, uh, obviously, and and maybe it's not in DraftKings' interest that. Uh, the likes of Texas and California regulate at the moment, where uh, they are in a in a very heavy investment period, as it is still. Like they wouldn't perhaps be able to afford to launch um, in a, in in a couple of extra larger states at the moment, but rather stabilize the industry, stabilize the company, and um, once they, you know, presumably reach the targets and and the market is uh, happy about what they see, they'll be able to. Uh, um, make those investments later on. So maybe it's a good thing for, yeah, uh, for the organization. To, to be perfectly honest, I'm not that hung up on DraftKings specifically. They're one player yeah. within all this. And look, they've got a bit of a challenging path ahead because a number of their competitors can continue to spend and invest based on revenues that they're bringing in from other areas, be it the retail mm -hmm. side, be it uh, entertainment, be it, you know, in the case of, uh, of, of Entain and, 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 and FanDuel, some of their international operations that generate revenue. So some of their competitors have revenue streams coming in from other areas where they can continue to make investments even as they continue to grow this thing. And that might be a little bit more challenging for DraftKings in particular. But to me, it's not about them. It's about the industry as a whole. And uh, yeah, to me, it's uh, there's going to be a, a lot of opportunity moving forward. But, you know, it's still fair to say that for, yeah. for startups in this space, which is more the playground that I'm playing in, as they look at valuation mm -hmm. metrics and justification of valuation metrics, it used to be, well, DraftKings is a $30 billion company, so I can justify my valuation. Well, they're not a $30 billion company anymore. So, exactly. you know, give me another reason to justify your valuation. Yeah. And sometimes that's difficult to do. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And, and it's, an, uh, it's an interesting point. I mean, you, you focus on seed and CSA investments, of course, and and um, so you you must have a pretty good idea of the startup landscape in the uh, in the US uh, at the moment on the on the sports betting side of things. Like, what would you say are some of the most interesting uh, startups at the moment? If you could highlight a few. I mean, look. Hopefully, it's the ones that I'm that I'm uh, that you are advising to course, and yes. advising to and investing in are hopefully some of the interesting <laughs> ones. I don't know. I think it's some of the ones that look at. It's a couple of things that look at where is this industry headed and how am I gonna how am I gonna help that the industry get there, right? So you know, you look at companies. I'm a big believer that eventually we're gonna move to a single screen experience. 
um, where you can watch a game on your phone and, and, and transact directly from that screen. And, you know, you look at companies that are involved uh, in, in helping make that happen, whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's a company like a stream layer or whether it's a company like Phoenix Real-Time Solutions that, you know, has a, a better mousetrap for streaming technology. Uh, I'm also involved with a company called Panda Interactive that creates interactive layers that allow for, you know, uh, an, a unique engagement experience. So I think that everything to do with that whole streaming space, we're still a little bit early. I think those companies have to figure out where they fit within this and how they create the relationships with the networks and how that fits into the operators and how you bring all that together. But I'm pretty convinced that there's going to be some interesting opportunities in that entire area and which companies will be the biggest winners, I think still remains to be seen, but I think that's an exciting area. And then I just think there's a lot of companies that are looking at what is the current user experience and the current engagement and how do we create more meaningful engagement and more meaningful social interaction? And what is it that the next generation of betters are going to be looking for? And you know, I look at companies like uh, Kiro with Tomasz Devanishek, and I think that that's really interesting because they're looking at what is the experience today, what's lacking there, and what can we do to make that experience more interesting moving forward. And currently free to play, but eventually real money. And you know, beyond that, you look at some of the new operators that are coming into the space that are kind of viewing things in a different way than than the current incumbents. Um, which doesn't mean that they're going to surpass those incumbents overnight. Uh, that would be a little bit foolhardy to think as such. But I think that there is a generation of up-and-coming future betters as well as existing folks that perhaps aren't being catered to by the way in which we present the sports betting experience today. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what impact do some of these new players have, whether it's you know Jeremy Levine with Underdog or whether it's Mojo or whether it's Fanatics when they get into the market, or Joey Levy's new startup, which uh, remains unnamed, I believe. So there's a whole bunch of things that I think look really interesting moving forward, and not even sure what the question was or if I've answered it, but that would be my answer. Perfect. It's a perfect answer. I mean, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> I'm asking here because we, we are, we are uh, obviously in the New York conference that we have uh, ahead of us here. We are trying to get a good grip of the startup landscape. You know, uh, we have to highlight uh, some of these. But I think the other thing that people have to recognize is that to me, this market isn't one size fits all. Like it's not you just yeah. build an iGaming app and the whole world's going to come to it. There's, it's a big country, man. And uh, yeah. Canada is now emerging. That's a big country too. And it's a big world out there. And there's different sets of consumers that are looking for different things. So I think there's room for a lot of it. You know, you look at guys yeah. like the sport trades and the profits and they're looking more towards a high frequency trader type of a market. And, you know, I, I think hopefully there's an audience there. There might be some challenges because of the state by state liquidity and they got to resolve that. But I think that's really interesting in terms of targeting a segment that might view the sports betting experience in a different way. Then you've got some of the more social exchanges, whether it's, you know, uh, Lucra and Wager and a few others, and they view the sports betting experience in a different way that's a bit more social and that appeals to a different audience. Then you've got some right. unique fantasy startups that, of course, the next fantasy startup won't be the next DraftKings necessarily, but they don't need to be to have a successful and enjoyable journey for those entrepreneurs and for the advisors and investors who back them. But they can find a niche and find their place in the market. And, you know, to me, it's not one size fits all. And, you know, the creativity in the marketplace 
probably doesn't come from people like me who view the world in a certain way and who've been doing this for so long. The creativity probably comes from, you know, a 15 year old kid who's sitting right now in his bedroom and, and, you know, he's growing up now in an era where sports betting in the U S is legal and, you know, socially and culturally acceptable. And it's, you know, he's putting his brain rather than putting his brain towards finance and other metrics, uh, he's putting his brain towards sports betting and he's going to come up with yeah. something which will be the next unicorn in our space. And it may not make sense to me today because I don't view the world through the same lens as that person. Yeah, exactly. It's like like Wager, uh, for example, is a good example here, right? They, they are trying to uh, kind of create like a social media sports betting platform. And that, that's from a, a pretty young guy that come out from the university in the US, right? That's a perfect example, I think, of a startup who is uh, uh, coming from from left field, you know, coming from a co- totally different angle than what we are used to. Yeah, look, I, uh, I, I love what Wager are doing. Uh, mm. From a selfish standpoint, uh, you know, I, I have a I'm a backer of Lucra, so they're kind oh, of a little enough. bit competing with one <laughs> another. So, you know, I think they're both doing really interesting things. But yeah, yeah they view they view the betting experience. First of all, they view it differently from one another because there's differences in their approach. And they view it differently from what what you know a fan duel experience should be. But I think there's room for a lot. I think there's room for all of it. And it's not like there has to be one winner. It's uh, the winning is defined by how you define winning in your particular circumstance. And if you yeah, build yeah. up a company and have fun doing it and make some dollars along the way for yourselves and investors, you don't need to finish number one in this race to have had a nice outcome. Exactly. Let's zoom in, zoom in on this uh, opportunity a little bit on kind of the uh, the social media um, idea of creating uh, a betting experience around the social media uh, experience. I mean, something that the um, it, that has been alien to this industry up until now is uh, creating networking effects and uh, sustainable communities and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know how, how um, involved you are in, in, in the product that you're invested in, but uh, I would be really interested to know, like, uh, I guess the biggest challenge of uh, such a product is just to create and maintain the community around it and to create those networking effects. Is that something you guys have talked about uh, in, in, in that specific product? Like, I, I would imagine this is a, a pretty big challenge. Like, how do you actually uh, come to the point where you have a self-sustaining community? Because that's what it's all about, this uh, social experience. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't think anyone has cracked that nut yet. There's a number of no, companies. No one have tried. Are, yeah, there's a few that are trying. And I think there's some interesting companies uh, bouncing around uh, uh, that, that are looking at that. One is, uh, do I have the name right? Chalkboard. I think they're doing some interesting things around social. I think BetSperts is doing some interesting things around social in terms of the community that they're building. Um, but it's still early days and they're all still relatively small. Um, and, and then within the sports books themselves, they're all talking about it. How do we make our experience more social? You know, uh, you know, what technology is available out there that, you know, can help move the needle within our organization and within our user experience to create a more social experience. And the very nature of the platforms and the technology that we see today is not socially driven and that's fine, you know? So does it become something that comes built into the next generation of what a platform should look like? Or does it become a third-party product that, that gets integrated into a platform to create more social features? Or, or, or does, it, does it exist outside the experience of an existing sports book? 
you know, I don't think anyone has really cracked that nut yet, but it's certainly being talked about both internally at sportsbooks and by a number of startups that are looking at ways to help manage that solution moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, looking at the US um, startup landscape, uh, specifically in our industry, it's so much more vibrant than what it is here on the European side. The startups on the European side, you often see are very iterative. It's um, a small improvement on, on an uh, existing uh, product, essentially. And you see a lot of game studios uh, producing an enormous amount of games. I mean, they, it's it's really incredible the last couple of years how many um, games have been produced in, on a month-to-month basis. Um, but, but on the US side of the pond, it seems to be much more vibrant. And um, there seems to be a lot more products that are willing to uh, try new things. Do you think as well that this will lead to a lot of uh, companies going bust as well, potentially? Like uh, the, the, uh, there's a lot of trial and error happening right now. Like how is this turning out from your perspective, do you think? I mean, look, uh, for every entrepreneur that's got a startup, I, I certainly hope they don't go bust, but you never go, yeah. you know, you're never going to bat a hundred, but never, you're never going to bat a thousand in a baseball season. So some no, businesses sure. succeed, some businesses fail. And some businesses fail for a multitude of reasons. It might not have anything to do with product. It might be how they ran the company or how they manage their day-to-day expenses or other factors that play into it. But look, you know, the European experience and how that's contributed to where we are in the U.S. has been absolutely critical. You know, I think the important part is not to rest on our laurels, but to look at how we can enhance the experience and, 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 and adapt it to you know, create better engagement. And to your point, the more social features in the US. And, you know, you look at something as simple as cash out, which has taken Europe by storm. And now all the, you know, US operators, like we got to get cash out because, you know, the platforms are all saying our customers are all asking for it and get it integrated and get it up and running. And now we're looking beyond that. And we have startups. One that I'm involved in uh, is a company called BetSwap. And there's, I think, a couple of other competitors as well that, are embedding B2B platforms within the sportsbook experience, which is like cash out on steroids. And it allows users within a FanDuel or a DraftKings or a PointsBet or a RustReads or whichever operator it may be, a Caesars MGM, to, to lay off bets or pieces of bets with one another within that user experience, which in and of itself is a more social experience than what we have today. So None of this happens overnight. It's all an evolution and some great yeah. technology that's come out of it and that continues to come out of Europe. And how do we adapt that in the U.S. space to meet the needs of what this market is looking for? Yeah, I, I think as well, uh, what's driving the uh, innovative spirit in the U.S. is perhaps as well that uh, there's just so much investment flowing into the space. So there's uh, a lot of space for um, new ideas to be tested as well, which uh, I don't think traditionally has been the case on the European side. I mean, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of headwinds in in the uh, in in Europe, and, and investors have been quite cautious in the products that they have chosen to invest uh, in. Uh, and you know, in in the US at the moment, there's uh, there's an enormous amount of influx uh, of investment, and I, I suppose um, that leads me to another question, which is considering the amount of investment that is flowing into the online sports betting and iGaming space at the moment um, it seems to be quite easy uh, like <laughs> I say easy like relatively easy for um, a talented entrepreneur to find uh, capital and so it's almost like the tables are uh, reversed in a way where uh, a talented entrepreneur will will have a, a smorgasbord of options of uh, who he or she wants to choose 
to have as an investor in the in their company and so they can kind of set demands and uh, and ask what you as an investor will contribute with in their organization so the question is basically um is first of all is that sentiment something you can relate to because i'm maybe i'm totally wrong here and secondly um if that is the case uh, what do you do as an investor to make sure that uh, talented entrepreneurs choose you it's a good question. So first of all, it's a little bit harder to raise today than it was six months ago. That's for sure. Right. You know, so for the yeah. entrepreneurs, you know, you're right. Going back to, to before uh, the, the, the current market challenges, you know, I wouldn't say it was easy then to raise money. There's still challenges. But it, if you have a particularly the, the hot deals that are really interesting products driven by exceptional entrepreneurs and you kind of get into a bidding war where every VC wants to lead that round. Um, I think you got to bear in mind that it's a little bit different for me than it might be for the VC firms. Cause I'm in, you know, uh, my company is Avenue H capital, but it's not really a, you know, it's me. Avenue H is me investing yeah. and advising to companies. And it's not some multi, you know, Avenue H is the street. My dad grew up in, in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. So that's my <laughs> investment corp that upon which I invest into companies. Right. So, um, I'm not writing checks that'll move the needle in a meaningful way. When I get involved with a company, typically it's an uh, advisory role alongside some form of investment. And it's typically alongside some form of a VC lead. And my check isn't going to move the needle. So you often have a number of VC firms that are battling for pull position on the super hot deals. But more often than not, those entrepreneurs would see value in allowing someone like myself to come in for a smaller check. Uh, it adds value in, uh, in many instances in their perception as it pertains to rounding out the cap table, adding somebody with some strategic industry exposure and experience and a network and some contacts and some additional perspective. So even though many of those VC firms are doing fantastic things and have resources beyond resources that I as an individual can ever hope to have, sometimes it's easier for me to get into a deal because there's four or five VCs vying to lead the round, and that entrepreneur's got to make a decision there. But there's usually room for Benji Cherniak to sneak in with a small check at the finish line, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Brilliant, brilliant. And, and, and the charm helps as well, I suppose. Uh, uh, I mean, and, and if we if we turn the table around then to you, I mean, what, what's most important to you when you consider an investment? Like, what type of investments are you looking at at the moment, and where do you see the future in the in the online sports betting space in general? I, I'm going to actually segue off topic yeah. before I even get to that answer. In that, all right, I, I kind of find it interesting that I'm like referred to as an industry investor because I, I guess I am. But when I wrapped up my tenure. With, uh, with Scientific Games uh, post-acquisition. And now it's January of 2021, which is, I guess, 16 or 17 months ago. It's not like I woke up that morning and said, hey, I am now an advisor and an investor to the yeah. space. I woke up that morning saying, I'm going to rent a place in Miami for the winter and hang out on the beach a little bit more and have a good time and <laughs> figure out the rest of my life uh, whenever I figure it out. I wasn't really in a hurry. Yeah to do anything. And, and quite frankly, I'm still not, right? So, right, but as I began, you know, obviously I have so many friends in the space and contacts. And as I began speaking to people and looking at opportunities and talking to other folks that are actively involved in, 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 in investing in the space, at that time, Chris Grove was doing a lot of deals and sending a few things my way. And 
obviously he's someone who I think all of us highly respect and yes. Lloyd Danzig was doing some cool stuff and you know Sean Hurley was doing some cool things and a whole bunch of people and I began looking at a number of these things and you know uh, to me it was fun you know some good opportunities and getting to know some really dynamic entrepreneurs and 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 having the to me it's a privilege to be able to get involved and be a part of that journey and work with them and help them but I don't know if I even view myself as an investor and or an advisor, even though that's what I generally am doing these days. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe it'll come a day when I get involved in something operationally again myself. Uh, who knows? Like, I don't really have a specific game plan. So I'm segueing away from that. Yeah, yeah. And now coming to your back, coming back to your question in regards to what am I actually looking yeah. for in entrepreneurs and opportunities. So to me, I think it starts with the founder. I think everyone says that. And I don't want it to sound like lip service, but it does. Like, I want to I'm in a situation where I want to do what I want to do. And I, you know, I want to work with entrepreneurs who I want to work with and who, who are, are good people and who I feel represent the values that I want them to represent as it pertains to growing the industry. And, you know, I'm passionate about the industry. I, you know, I love it. And I think that there's exciting opportunities to make money, but I also want to work with people that I like working with. And I want it to be something where I feel as though that entrepreneur or that those entrepreneur founders and their team alongside their advisor, their advisory group and alongside their investors are kind of a unit that will be rowing the rowboat in the same direction. And, I, you know, there could be some great companies where I don't feel like I'm that fit, where I feel as though the way in which they're rowing might not be synergistic with how I would row. And, and right. that wouldn't be the right fit for me. It doesn't mean that they're a bad entrepreneur or a bad leader. They could be an outstanding leader, but it's more about fit. So that, that for me would be the number one thing. And then, of course, you got to look at what are the merits of the opportunity? What is the TAM? What type of an ROI do I think I can achieve? But I don't answer to a bunch of LPs the way a fund would. If I, if I were running a fund with a bunch of LPs, I would have to be laser focused on ROI, TAM, and what multiple can be achieved. I can get involved in a deal where I feel as though the multiple is pretty limited. The TAM is pretty limited, but I like the entrepreneurs. I like the gals and the guys involved. And I think I can add value and I think it would be fun. And I think we can make some money doing it. And I get involved because I want to, whereas if I were a fund, I'd have to pass on it. So I think it opens the door to me to some opportunities that are really interesting to me and that, 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 that make this whole process something that I've really been enjoying to date. And the biggest challenge, you know, within all that is finding the right deals and, you know, trying to ensure that you're, you're, I mean, quite a few different deals and there's so many great entrepreneurs out there. And, you know, remember like a lot of young people now coming out of university, they don't want to go work at a bank or do a startup and something they, they want to get involved in this industry. And there's some really smart, sharp people and you can't dance every dance, but there's some really <laughs> exciting stuff happening out there. So for me, it's like, I view it as a two-way street, you know, to your point earlier, they, they, do I, am I a fit for them? Are they a fit for me? And, right. you know, I feel very privileged to be in the number of the deals that I'm in. Right, right, right. And, you know, what, what you mentioned that it starts with the founder, just from my own personal experience, uh, we raised capital uh, with the uh, IGMNX in 2020. So during the pandemic, we were we were 100% on, on a conference, uh, an event company, right? So it was not the best uh, time obviously when the um, when the pandemic happened and um, uh, we we managed to pivot into uh, into kind of digital media build our network a bit better and we decided that we were gonna uh, raise funds into the company to to start growing our projects and this was the first experience that I had certainly of of, um, 
raising capital. And uh, I had no idea that uh, it, is the, it is so important for investors to look at the founder and the team. I thought it was much more about talking about the past, uh, the present and the future of the, of the company. And, and so um, the, the, um, the, the young people that I meet, and you know, when we talk about this in the, in the podcast, uh, I, I try to tell them as well, like, it's, it's so important um, to, uh, like, if you have a really good idea, it seems, um, it seems so foreign to seek investment if you have never done it before that uh, it seems like you have to put together really advanced spreadsheets you have to put together really really advanced kind of business plans in order to point out every little detail and in the company's story and where it's headed in the next couple of years and it's like sure there's an element of that that you obviously have to uh, to 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 show where this company is heading to some extent but i think uh, especially in seed investments uh, correct me if i'm wrong but uh, the plan that you see in the pitch deck, um, you you don't expect uh, those forecasts to be a hundred percent kind of uh, accurate. Sometimes, I mean, there 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 will be a lot of wiggle room in a in a in a newly funded company and a lot of trial and error before they find their way. And that's why perhaps the investor is so oh sorry why the founder is so important that this. Uh, the, the, the right skill set and and uh, talent and so on in order to be able to make those pivots. You know what I mean? You're you're 100% right. No, I I know exactly what you mean. And the only sure thing when you have a new startup and you see their financial forecasts, the only thing you can bank on is that those forecasts are wrong. They always are. Maybe (laughs) they'll be lower, maybe they'll be higher. It's not going to be what they're showing you on that piece of paper. And as you see their path and what they're aiming to do, more often than not, there's going to be some deviation from that path. And, you know, so it becomes super important that you have a founder that you believe is going to be adaptable enough to pivot when required and to kind of find a way and to work alongside the group as a collective to, to find those solutions. So, yeah, I, I agree with yeah. that entirely. Uh, uh, couldn't agree more with that sentiment. All right. And, and so, and, so um, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I think, look, you know, uh, I think for a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs that are coming into the space, you know, raising capital can be a little bit daunting. And you're right. They've got to put all those fancy decks together. All that's part of the process, particularly as you're going out to the VCs. No one's going to say, hey, here's some capital without seeing it on paper and getting with the entrepreneurs and understanding the the business. And, you know, it's not easy and it can be daunting. (laughs) But I think that there's a number of, I don't want to say mistakes, but maybe a number of things that, you know, kind of new entrepreneurs should bear in mind when they're putting some of these documentations together is, you got to try and put yourself in the shoes, not the shoes that you're in, but the shoes of the person who's going to be reading this deck and who you're coming to and asking for investment. And, you know, you often see uh, in these decks, here's the use of the funds. And you got to know how the funds are going to be used. But, you know, I, I think really what an investor needs to see is, and this is lacking many times in the decks and lacking many times in the presentations that are done verbally is, you know, if you get a dollar from me today, not just how will you spend that dollar, but where will that dollar take us to before we get to going out to get more capital or if we don't require that as we move towards other, you know, opportunities in the space, where is that going to take us? You know, if you have that dollar or that hundred dollars or that million dollars that you need, not how are you going to spend it? I have sure as hell know you're going to spend the money. Everyone's yeah. got, you know, you want to raise capital, spend it. And all that's interesting, but where is that going to get you to? And I think that that oftentimes is something that's missing in presentations that I see. 
and would be, sure. you know, maybe one piece of advice for the young entrepreneurs other than yeah. to be uber focused and to, to work hard and all those, you know, typical buzzwords. Yeah, yeah. yeah typical. I mean, uh, and to the point here of, um, uh, you know, it starts with the entrepreneur as well. So when um, after we were able to close our, our seed round uh, at ArgumentX, we were really happy and uh, proud to have YOLO Investments as our lead investor with Tim Heat um, as, a, as a lead investor. And uh, he said uh, that he said afterwards, basically, that uh, their, their um, guiding principles to make investments is uh, that they have a no dickhead policy. And so if you're not a dickhead as an, as an investor, then you have passed the first test, basically the the first principle, and I thought that was a uh, that was a good uh, kind of um, principle to, to have as an investor, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I think to the credit of you and your team, you went out to raise capital in the middle of a pandemic as an events company when you couldn't put on <laughs> events, and you pivoted in some direction as it pertains to the digital piece. But there were limitations within that. You're still going back to being an event company, uh, yeah, if not principally as a good chunk of your business plan. And to the credit of Tim and your other investors, you know, they recognize that long term, this isn't an overnight thing, there was a real opportunity, and I'm sure they believed in you, and you're seeing it now. We're all seeing it come to fruition with the things that you and your team are doing. And it's also, to your credit, uh, I think it would be good for entrepreneurs to take a look at how you have built a good team around you. And at the beginning of this chat, you talked about how Rory reached out to me way back when saying, hey, do you think it might be a good idea? <laughs> to do a conference on the investment side. And, you know, there's an example of someone you brought on board who I think is a rock star. And there's a number of others that have come on board since then who are also fantastic. So you're only as good as the people you put around you. And I think it's to the credit of Tim and his team that they recognized that you have the vision and the kind of the, the, the durability to view this over the long haul. And the ability based on who you are and how you manage things to bring on board the right people to bring this to fruition. And that's the path that you guys are on. Yeah, no, th thank you. Thanks, buddy. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know from your end as well. I mean, like what makes a talented entrepreneur? Because it's not only about having a good vision and working hard on that vision. Like, like you mentioned as well, I think one of the... Um, most difficult challenges as a as a startup is how do you attract talent into the business because the um, the, the startup is never going to be cash rich enough in order to offer the highest salaries uh, and so you're starting in a massive uphill as an entrepreneur where you want you have a great idea you know you have you, you have a lot of talent but how do you actually attract uh, people into the into the organization and I think that's one of the uh, one of the um, skills that a, that a good entrepreneur needs to have but uh, how do you see uh, is, is what makes in your eyes a good entrepreneur as well like are there other guiding principles that you need to be thinking of in order to you know, start I, uh, and build a successful company i think it goes back to what i said earlier when i was talking about how the u.s iGaming opportunity isn't one size fits all a great entrepreneur isn't one size fits all either there's no one characteristic that will make you a great entrepreneur and you know no. great at what you do I, I think part of it has to do with authenticity and being authentic in the way you approach this thing right and different mm -hmm. entrepreneurs bring different skill sets to the table you know like you look at uh, thrive with uh, adam Wein i don't know if you know adam weinstein and i, I i've turned down investments in thrive on a number of occasions <laughs> but he's his, his style of entrepreneurship is fantastic. Like he'll, he'll go through, rather than going around a wall, he'll go through it. And 
that that's him and that's what makes him great. Whereas another entrepreneur might have an entirely different approach. So I think it's being true to who you are, being authentic, being very transparent. You know, you, you have to be able to obviously work hard and be focused and be smart and all those general buzzwords. And yeah, you know, being charismatic and all. And it's also recognizing what you are and what you aren't. You know, you look at, take Becha as an example, and he had a couple of founders there. And many people look at Jason Shapiro, who's the president, as the founder, and he wasn't. They brought him in because they recognized that the existing founding team had great technology and user acquisition skill sets, but they needed a face that would be more adapted, helping them raise capital. And they brought in Jason for that purpose and gave him the appropriate equity to, to make it worth his while. And it worked famously for them. So these were two entrepreneurs that founded the company, or a few entrepreneurs, more than two, that recognized what the shortcoming was and went out and, and, and filled that skill set, right? So I think it's also knowing who you are, knowing what you are and what you aren't, and ensuring that you round out with the skill sets that are required to give you the maximum chance of success. And for those guys, it resulted in the sale to, to, to Vivid Seats. And now they're on to the next chapter of their journey, which is equally exciting. And, you know, it's a great example. Yeah, I, I'll add one more thing to that list as well, Benji. I think as well that as an entrepreneur, you have to be totally delusional. <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> you have to be able to and hope because, against hope. I mean, right, if, like any entrepreneur who who have an idea, um, if they are realistic and if they really understand the path they have ahead of them, they will turn around and run the other direction, right? Because Agreed. the amount of challenges and hurdles that is in front of them And if they manage to pass some of them, you still are faced with this general statistic that like nine out of 10 startups just won't make it, right? So you have to be totally delusional, I think. That has to be one of your um, personal traits in order to uh, go totally against all reason and still put all your heart and, and uh, effort into a product like this for the off chance that maybe, maybe it will work. <laughs> Yeah, like I, I couldn't agree with you more in, on one hand of it. And, you know, when I'm speaking with uh, an entrepreneur who's got a good idea in our space and they're showing me their deck, and if it's a first-time entrepreneur that hasn't done something in the space or in another space before, that's one of the first things I say to them is like, are you sure you really want to do this? You're a smart <laughs> gal or a smart guy. You can go get a job with a company and make a great living. Like, why do you want to go down this route and underpay yourself <laughs> exactly. and you know, scrounge around to try and raise some capital to bring this idea to life. And there's easier paths for you. Why do you want to do this? And I better get a good answer to that question and get convinced that they really do want to do this. And that they'll, you know, really have, I, it was an interesting one. I remember I had a conversation. I don't know if you know who uh, Omri Caspi is, nothing to do with the sports betting space, but right. he was a, a former NBA player and probably the best basketball player ever to come out of Israel. And he was raising money for his fund, which was geared primarily to Israeli technology companies. And, you know, I got on a call with him. Somebody introduced me and, you know, he was an impressive guy. I didn't invest in his fund, uh, or at least I haven't as of yet, but he was an impressive guy. But I asked that question to him, like, you've had success. You played in the NBA for 14 years and you made 70 mil, whatever the amount was, right? And, you yeah. know, you're a celebrity in Israel and like, why do you want to do this? Why, you, <laughs> yeah. you know, why do you, you do just, this to yourself? <laughs> why would you want to do this to yourself and start this and <laughs> make a 10 year commitment to, to, and I, you know, but I saw it in the answer. I can see the passion. I can see the fire in his eyes. I can see the fire in his belly. And I can see that this is really what he wants to do. And he wants to, to prove himself in this new challenge. And this is the next chapter. And he's, 
too young to sit around and, and go to the beach and all those things. And I, I left that conversation exceptionally convinced that this guy is going to do everything he can to be successful. And, and I would translate that to entrepreneurs in our space or any space that you got to really, you know, double down on, on that level of commitment and, and, and know that this is what you want to do and not just, hey, let's give it a shot for a few months. Exactly. Yeah. Sleepless nights, uh, low salaries. I mean, uh, disappointments and uh, and everything else. Uh, it just uh, has to be something for whatever strange reason that some people choose to put themselves through. Anyway, it's a funny phenomenon. I mean, uh, I think it was Gary Vee who said that, um, you know, being an entrepreneur, he said, uh, like, I wish I didn't have that type of drive because uh, the, the, the stress that it generates and so on and so forth. But some people um are just like that and i mean in your case Benji, i i suppose it's some somewhat connected to the dream at the end of the day i mean in your case you 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 built on best over i think 11 years or something like that and um as we talked about in the beginning of the podcast here you know you had a very limited um kind of a customer demographic here and and the, uh, especially before paspa where only foreign uh clients would consider to uh to, uh to to plug in your services and struggling with that i imagine it's not the easiest from time to time and then but then at the end of the day you manage you know what i mean you you got to that exit and um th that is yeah. at the end of the day re reward to some extent i, I suppose yeah different era. I, I get way too much credit for the success that we had over there uh, first of all i had two business partners who are as instrumental if not more instrumental to me to to the success uh whatever success we did have there and I had uh, uh, some staff members uh, uh, who, were, who were beyond sensational, the team that we had around us. And, you know, but yeah, there were struggles along the way. But, you know, it was a bit of a different era again. And we were very focused on, it was a different way in which we were building our company. We weren't that focused on outside investment to grow the company. We were more focused on growing within the means of our existing cash flow. So a little bit of a different situation and uh, not necessarily completely transferable from a skill set standpoint to what's happening in the market today. But of course, there's parallels. And of course, I can speak to the journey and the need to be able to go through the highs and the lows and take a long term approach to make it work. Right, right, right. And I mean, we are in the gambling industry after all. Uh, we all like a little bit of volatility in our life, I suppose. And that's why this space is made for entrepreneurs, I think. <laughs> you, can't win every, you can't win every bet on a Sunday. And as, as, as the sportsbook operators <laughs> will very well know, you, you don't win every Sunday either. So That's exactly right. Uh, but uh, moving on to a different industry here. I mean, um, I'm personally quite uh, interested and curious in the Web3 space, as in, you know, the, the kind of, if we want to frame that as the uh, metaverse, the NFT and crypto space, so to say. And uh, obviously, uh, in that vertical, there's been um, a crazy influx of uh, investment in the last uh, year, specifically, and, um, and the last two years, uh, broad, broadly speaking. Um, so I, I would like to ask you, uh, have you invested in, in this space? Uh, and, and as a follow-up to this question as well, like there is so many cash grabs in this space at the moment. And it really reminds me of uh, in 2017 when there was the ICO hype uh, that turned out to be just a massive bubble. And, you know, 95% of those products turned into uh, what was just hot air, essentially. There were some good products coming out of them, like Ethereum was the born out of an ICO, for example, Sandbox, which is now, you know, 
uh, a massive uh, upcoming metaverse uh, came out of the ICO hype as well. But in the end of the day, 95% of those uh, ICOs turned out to be only hot air. And it really reminds me of, of what is uh, happening at the moment in the NFT space, where um, there are so many NFT products that are essentially obvious cash grabs. And, and, and it really reminds me and it makes me a bit scared that we'll see a second bubble uh, appearing just like the ICO bubble kind of crashed um, uh, the crypto space for a number of years. And so, yes, long uh, question short here. Uh, have you invested in the space and what do you do to avoid these uh, cash grabs? So, uh, look, I'm not cash grab focused when it comes to that space, even though there's probably some phenomenal cash grab opportunities. I'm, I'm just not smart enough to know which which ones are the the right ones to get involved with. And yeah, look, I've got, uh, you know, two investments within that world that are exceptionally small investments and they don't really relate, to be honest with you, to the sports betting or iGaming space in a meaningful way. So, you know, almost all the investing that I do is, is iGaming and sports betting related. Uh, you know, I have a couple of really small plays that deviate from that, uh, uh, within, uh, the web three and specifically the NFT space. But when we look at the intersection of, of blockchain, Web3, crypto, NFT, and sports betting, you know, have I made any investments in companies that are trying to figure out how to bring those worlds together? I haven't as of yet. You know, I've certainly seen a number of decks. You know, to me, I think it's still a question of, you know, how will those worlds intermix? And for me... Like the world of iGaming and sports betting does have a proven path forward in terms of, you know, the ability to, for, for companies to, 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 to start and grow and, and achieve a, a result independent of, of the Web3 dynamic. Um, so there's going to be some intersection. There's no question about it. Um, but which portions within that entire universe are a bubble? Which portions within that universe are here for the long haul? which portions from that universe are going to marry in a synergistic way to the iGaming space and how will that happen? You know, I think a lot of us are asking those questions and we're seeing a lot of companies that are asked that are, that are taking steps within that, you know, DraftKings as an example uh, of a company that's thinking that way. Um, you know, I think some of the new kind of B2C startups or, uh, or, or companies that are migrating even from fantasy into, into sports betting and, and iGaming are asking those questions and thinking in terms of with that next generation that's more blockchain focused and that's more NFT focused and that understands Web3, what does that mean as it pertains to a sports betting experience? You know, we say sports betting and iGaming is in early days, you know, Web3 is in early days, even earlier days. So yeah. exactly how this will play out and what will be the intersection, my guess is that there's going to be some really exciting opportunities and probably there already have been. And it may be that you know, maybe BetDex becomes the next unicorn in terms of creating a blockchain exchange, or maybe it's one of their many competitors whose decks I've seen come across my my desk. Um, but as an investor, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a challenging dynamic to see how we marry those worlds in a way that makes sense to me for an investment today. So I continue to evaluate it, but a bit more from the sidelines than proactively putting capital in. Yeah, no, that's, I, th I think that sounds like a pretty reasonable um uh, step to take i mean there's uh what's interesting to me is uh obviously in a sense the space has already proven itself in, when it comes to the intersection between web3 and um, 
uh, online sports betting and iGaming. I mean, you have you have uh, products like Sadrun, for example, which is this like digital horse racing NFT collection and, and and product, which is valued to like a billion USD. You know, and they are generating a massive amount of of, uh, of money as it is. And this is a, like a very unique way of of gambling, essentially, that the uh, our industry would have never thought about. You know, these are entrepreneurs from. Uh, that comes from a from a different perspective, like we talked about before here, and and um, it almost seems to me, and, and and we have other 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 examples here, like Ice Poker, which is the uh, the largest casino in the metaverse. Uh, so Ice Poker is active on Decentraland, which is the biggest metaverse, and they are already generating millions of dollars every month. Right? It's it's a, a it's like an enormous project that um, our industry again would have never thought about, but it's. It's low-hanging fruit to build a casino in the metaverse. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I, I think another. I agree with you on all that. I think another piece, as it relates to me specifically, is, yeah. you know, what am I passionate about? You know, what am I passionate about within the world mm -hmm. of iGaming and sports betting and ancillary industries that touch on that? And, you know, I don't really have any active investments in the esports space. I've come across some decks that look super interesting and I've met some entrepreneurs who are going to do some fantastic things in the esports space and people already are. Um, but it's not an area of passion for me, right? So, and it's not an area, like I'm sure I can add some level of value, but it just doesn't resonate with me in terms of my personal interests and things that I really enjoy and love. And therefore, I'm much more likely than not to pass on an esports investment, even if it's a fantastic opportunity for that reason alone. And it's not that I'm not passionate about Web3, but I'm not yeah. as passionate as some other people who've appeared on your podcast as it pertains to just my general interest in it. And of course, I track it. Yeah. And of course, I'm looking at opportunities and I'm, and I'm still learning. I think we all are. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's a healthy perspective. I mean, there's, uh, again, there's so much money flowing in from speculative uh, from a speculative perspective, which um, really reminds you of the um, internet bubble in the late 90s, where... Uh, a lot of investors didn't understand the space, but they just wanted to be invested in internet projects, right? And and it turned out that a lot of them were hot air, and that caused the internet bubble. And it really feels like we're in the same area here. So being careful and trying to understand the space, uh, it sounds pretty healthy at this stage, I think. Um, you know, moving on a little bit as well, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about what are the um, most interesting startups in the uh, online sports betting and, on and, and online gambling space at the moment and you you talked a lot about uh, kind of a one-stop shop where you can stream sports you can bet on sports and kind of in one platform and it's uh, it brings to mind um a company called Dazone, um which is uh, a streaming uh, online streaming platform uh, similar to espn plus what you guys have in the states but they focus on boxing Dazone. Um, they hired about a year ago, a little bit more, uh, the ex-CEO of Entain, so Shay Segev. He moved, moved over to the zone. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of speculation uh, throughout the year that the zone would launch an, an actual in-play uh, sports betting service uh, uh, overlaid in the streaming, basically, of the, of the sports. And um, this was announced just the other day, essentially, that uh, this uh, sports betting uh, product is now... Uh, is now being launched and it's going to be launched in August of this year. And mm -hmm. it really is a, it's an interesting way to disrupt our industry because uh, the zone has something like seven to 10 million uh, active subscribers. 
uh, right? It's an enormous number. Um, these are paying subscribers, essentially, in the zone's platform. These are all recreational kind of sports fans who, 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 who watch sports through their platform. And maybe not the players who would generally uh, play online sports betting. Uh, probably because when you enter a Bet365 or a DraftKings or whatnot, the platforms can be quite daunting. I mean, you're essentially entering like an advanced spreadsheet when you open Bet365.com and places. So, so you, you, the demographic is quite limited for Bet365. You have to really be um, you have to really be passionate for sports betting in order to place a bet on Bet365. And the idea of the zone is essentially, why don't we bring in the recreational player? They come for the uh, streaming, but maybe they stay for the betting. You know what I mean? They, they'll get the offer to, uh, do you want to place a bet? And it's very simple, 1x2 on the game that you are watching. And, um, and, uh, and you can activate that massive uh, database that wouldn't otherwise uh, place a bet. And at the same time, you're bringing two platforms into one. So the players, they don't have to, um, they don't have to be active at the Bet365 uh, and then watch the game at the zone. They can do everything within one platform. And so mm -hmm. my very long point here that I'm getting to is that um, there is, in my opinion, um, a pretty interesting disruption happening at the moment from mainstream brands. And obviously, Disney is expected to enter the space as well. Could we see the same thing happening within ESPN Plus, where if they just flip the switch and offer sports betting inside ESPN Plus, they could potentially disrupt the entire industry? Uh, and so, uh, I would like to to uh, to have your opinion here on this very long-winded question, uh, Bandy. If um, if you see these mainstream brands as a p potential disruptors to our industry, because on 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 the other hand, they are also legitimizing the industry by putting their names on entering the industry. What do you think? Yeah, well, look, you know, I think we're past the point of are we going to get, is this industry going to become legitimized or not uh, in the North American space? It's pretty clear that, that it is and that it will and that it's, you know, six, seven years ago, sports betting was a bad word. And if you were, you know, a kid going to, uh, you know, a, a school, uh, Michigan or whatever school you were going to and you graduate, you can go work for a bank or you can go work for an advertising company or you can go become a lawyer if you told your parents you're going to go work for a, a sports book operator, you know, they'd be like, you know, you're going to go work for a bookie who breaks people's legs is what they might be thinking. And it just wasn't socially acceptable. <laughs> Whereas, you know, today it's very viable and, you know, there's programs for kids in school and there'll be more of that. And, you know, for, for, for folks to have career planning within our space and it's a real industry and it's going to continue to grow and grow. And then all of these things that you're alluding to, you know, uh, with with Disney and ESPN and the the, the ESPN Plus opportunity and uh, with the Zone, um, it does further legitimize something that's already pretty legitimate. And it's a question of how are they viewing the opportunity and what innovation are they bringing? And you're right, it does play into what I said earlier as it pertains to where does streaming fit into this and where does the intersection between sports betting and media lead us to. And, and, you know, what was the initial wave of that? The initial wave of that was a media company would partner with a sports book and figure out ways to send their traffic. And what are the augmented ways in which we can create technology to allow that and to enhance that and to make it a more synergistic experience? And then you have companies that are media companies becoming sports betting operators, starting with, you know, the score, which is, of course, now acquired by, by Penn. Um, and, and then the bigger players are looking at it from the outside, you know, and I think the ESPNs of the world, the day passport, 
the day PASPA was repealed, you know, began forming their committees to begin assessing this opportunity and hiring their consultants and more of the professional sports leagues began hiring, you know, a VP of the betting opportunity and getting more proactive in terms of how are we going to partner with this industry and everyone wants on board because there's a growing financial opportunity that's going to continue to get bigger and bigger in the years ahead. So yes, you know, uh, uh, these, it's to me, will one particular company create the type of disruption you're alluding to potentially, but it may not even be the zone. It could be fanatics who will come in and do things in a way with their database. It'll be really interesting to see how do they migrate their database from what they currently use it for into this betting opportunity, not just within the US, but potentially globally. And certainly all eyes on ESPN to see what will their move be. They're having a lot of conversations with a number of different stakeholders. And, and, and even some of the bigger players like a DraftKings, might they get acquired by somebody and how would that shake up the industry? So there's already yeah. been a lot of disruption and there's going to continue to be a lot of disruption as this thing moves forward. Yeah, I mean, but I, I, I love being in this industry because, I mean, there's just never a dull, dull day in the in this space. And, um, you know, every week we are, you know, lucky enough to kind of report on these things within, within our gaming next. And, uh, I mean, it's like it's an incredible space in general. And, I mean, so I I guess this leads me to kind of the final point of, of today. It's been great to spend this hour with you here, but, you, but we're going to start running off a bit. And, and so who do you think will be the winners and losers in the U.S. online and... Um, uh, I, online sports betting and iGaming space in the next two years? You know, pe people ask me that question a lot. And to be honest, uh, and I say this respectfully, I, I don't love the question because what does winning <laughs> and losing mean? Does it mean who's going to be the number one sports book in the world in the next two or three years? Personally, yeah. as someone who's advising to companies and investing in companies, I don't really care. And the reason that I say that is because... <laughs> All the B2B companies I'm working with are creating relevant products to help solve problems for operators and media companies and other entities that are involved in this ecosystem. And on the operational side, what does winning and losing really mean? Like, you know, there could be a startup that comes in on the B2C side that goes from zero to, to becoming a $150 million company on an exit which is a blip on the radar in the big picture of this thing, but that's a lot of success for that particular entrepreneur and that company and their journey. So I'm really more focused on what level of win can be achieved as opposed to will DraftKings beat FanDuel or will Caesars beat MGM? But if you're putting it to me, like I, I like the idea of companies that have more to it than strictly the iGaming and sports betting component and that are able to use Sportsbook as a way to, to create consumers and customer base to augment revenues in other areas. So, you know, you look at a, a Caesars and an MGM and how they're positioned in that regard. And when you're looking at public companies and where their stock prices are, you know, those would be the ones that seem potentially to be interesting opportunities to me. Brilliant, uh, Benji. It's been been an honor to spend this uh, hour together with you. And as a final thing, you know, let's say that you are, are a... Um, a, a potential you, you, you're an entrepreneur with a really great idea and you've listened to this podcast and you think uh, jesus christ benji seems like a great person to uh, to to work together with how does he or she get in touch at, in touch with you to be honest the easiest thing is just to grab me on linkedin and shoot me a request and uh you know a little bit of a background on who you are and you know what you're looking to do and 
you know, if it's, it's, if it's reasonable, I would typically respond to that. And from there, get you my email and take a look at it. And, you know, look, I, I do look at a lot of different things and I, I try to look at everything. Like, I guess my view on this is if you're an entrepreneur and you really are dedicated to spending the rest of your life on something and you've made some traction and you've got your deck together and you're ready to go, you know, uh, the least I could do is maybe give you 15 minutes of my time if you're going to spend your whole life on it. So generally, I am pretty receptive to it. If it's something that's really outside my comfort zone or wheelhouse, I'll say so. But, uh, you know, I would invite people to reach out to me. And even if it's not something where I can help move the needle, maybe I know somebody who can help move the needle. Or maybe I can give you some sort of percept perspective or insight in a very brief conversation that can maybe add value in some capacity. Brilliant, Bandy. And like I said, it's been a great, it's been great to uh, to spend this hour with you. And again, thank you for assisting us as well as Hagemenex to establish uh, a little bit of a foothold and a network in the North American market. It's been of great value to us. And so um, looking forward to meet you in person in 12th and the 13th of May. Yeah, listen, for people who are seeing this podcast in advance of iGaming Next, maybe you're watching this and it's already <laughs> taken place, but if it hasn't, get down there. I think it's going to be a really a sensational event. And for you guys, your first foray day-to-day -day operationally with an event in the US, I couldn't be more excited for not just that event, but for everything you guys have going on thereafter. And really appreciate you taking the time to spend the time with me today. I know that your podcast is really viewed as one of the leading ones within this space. So it's more of an honor for me than it is for you, my man. Much appreciated. <laughs> if you ever need a hype man, call Benji. Thank you so much. There you go. <laughs> All right.